There's more info at kpfa.org. For Blair and David's Grateful Dead, coming into bloom again November 19th. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Javelin Richards. Good af- good afternoon and welcome to Cover to Cover Javelin's Bistro. It's good to be back with you. And on today's show, I have two guests. One of the guests you are so familiar with, and if you've been listening to KPFA this afternoon, then you would, uh, my guest is going to be Jack Foley. More Jack, everybody. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can see them leaving the radio in <laughs> Everybody <laughs> clicking. They're turning it up. And then also, we also have John Curl. Uh, John Curl is co-editor of the book, Overthrowing Capitalism, Volume 3, Reclaim a Community. And Jack is a part of that anthology with a piece that he wrote. And one of the things before we get started, I want to say my favorite quote of the day. My favorite quote of the day was by a three-year-old person in my Pilates class. <laughs> and he said to me, are you going to the train station to see where the trains are going? <laughs> we all need to know. <laughs> and I told him, I said, I, I really wish I, did, I was going there, but I'm going to KPFA to talk to two people about this anthology. So I'm going to start off with, first of all, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe Bloom. Yes, I met you the first time at the... This was, I went, well, first of all, the history of it, the brief history. Uh, Jack and I went down to the museum. The Beat Museum. The Beat Museum in San Francisco. And I was there to read uh, the part of uh, Jack's poem that he wrote entitled... Uh, Sign of the Times. And it's it's uh, it, uh, my favorite quotation is in that poem. Workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jack and I may do that on the air today. He's done it with Nina before. If we have time, we, we will do that. And I promise you, Jack, I will get the lines much more accurate. This oh, well, time. no, me too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and so, now, when we hear the title, Overthrowing Capitalism, Volume 3, John, one would think that this came out immediately within the chaos that we're experiencing now, but actually, this is Volume 3. When was the first, and how long have you been a part of this, and when, was, when did the first volume come out? Uh, we did this three years ago. We started these uh, this series. <clears throat> we did at that time. We did not know that it, that it would be a series. We were just putting out an anthology, and uh, but it turned out that it was more than an anthology. It was a uh, it was kind of an ongoing. You could either look at it look at it as an annual anthology or a literary magazine. But it's going to be coming out every year with a different uh, theme every year by the. Revolutionary Poets Brigade that I've, which started about six years ago and, uh, in San Francisco. And I've worked, uh, with the brigade or been part of the brigade for about five years. And now there are, um, there are chapters, uh, in different parts all over the country, in different cities and internationally and in Italy and 
France. There's a um, uh, there are, there are revolutionary poets brigades uh, in many places around the world now. And so the intentions of the poets is to to keep the awareness to start a revolution. Of course, that would be the implication, and it's all over the world. Is there? It has to be a fundamental belief that this could make some changes. So that's the fundamental belief. Do you believe that? Well, progressive social change has never been made without consciousness. And uh, poets and uh, other cultural workers are uh, physicians of consciousness. You know, we come in a, uh, we live in a very uh, bleak age in a lot of ways. Where uh, in much of the world, there's a very low consciousness of a. Uh, uh, of of uh, social issues. Where if I may say, so, the kind of consciousness we have in our country at the moment very much needs physicians, <laughs> needs doctoring. That is true. That right, is true. And, that, and that's what that's what the brigades are doing. The brigades are uh, um, they. When, when, at least when I went to school, which was quite a while ago, probably the same time that Jack went to school, um, the the kind of uh, poetry and culture that was presented as important was po- was uh, culture and poetry that was really not socially engaged that was uh, uh was separate was non-political was uh was um uh kind of ivory tower elitist culture and um and who would for example be some of the authors of that poetry that you could, if you could think of or you or Jack could think of off the top W.H. Auden, <laughs> who started as a radical, but by the time, uh, and, and who was a leftist in the beginning, and by the time we encountered him in the 40s, late 40s and 50s, uh, he had shifted pretty much into something else from that. It was his okay. social consciousness had left him. Uh, so um, we had him, uh, T.S. Eliot, who was really basically a royalist and a traditionalist. I mean, these were the primary names. Uh, or you had Ezra pound who was a fascist as a matter right. of fact i mean the, uh, more interesting in many ways than either of the other two guys i've, I've been talking about so uh, this is what you refer to john as the ivory tire tower type of poetry this was the literary establishment at the time and, and up until recently at the end of world war ii the united states through the government through the cia and the uh the organizations that were that were right before the CIA, which kind of just changed its name to the CIA, and through um, a greater uh, um, foundation, through all the uh, through all the um, uh, financing of culture, they promoted. They they gave they gave many many millions of dollars to promote uh, a culture that was not political. They were trying they were trying to depoliticize the culture, which is in a, you know say in painting was represented by uh, the Jackson Pollock type of painting with you know. I mean, that's not, if there's anything wrong with that, uh, abstract painting. Abstract painting can be very profound. You know, however, we live in a, we live in a world that is in, a, uh, in desperate straits. And, uh, since culture, poetry and other kinds of culture really are the backbone of, uh, of, of consciousness and social change, that to promote, uh, abstract art, abstract culture is to promote, uh, Reactionary, or, or to promote or, only that. Let's or say. to promote only that. Promote yes, only that. Yeah, that. yeah. Let's have that kind of profound, and not another kind of profound, because the other kind of profound might lead people into to be conscious. Yes, to think, right. to feel, to experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So now, 
how, just a brief history of how the two of you began to write poetry, and then the two of you, when did you realize that the, the type of poetry you're writing could raise consciousness, and how did you make, uh, did you start off as, I'm writing to make consciousness, or what happened? What is the history? Um, well, for me, um, I discovered poetry by a kind of act of baptism. I didn't think I was interested in poetry, and then somebody told me to read a poem. <laughs> in a particular <laughs> poem, it was Gray's Elegy. It was in a I'm sorry? Thomas Gray's Elegy, written okay. in a country churchyard. It was a poem. And what had happened in it was um, the kind of consciousness I had every day, which was fine. I used it to maneuver the world. I used it to watch TV. I used it to do all kinds of reasons. Suddenly, it was expanded. Here was this guy. I mean, I, I was an Irish Irish kid, you know, living in the 20th century. And here was this guy, British aristocrat, 18th century. I didn't think he was going to have anything to say to me, you know. And I read this poem, and, and there was my mind, clearer, much more clearly expressed than it was in my mind in his poem. And that was extremely important. But in the terms of the arriving in a political consciousness, the thing probably that did it to me most was Bertolt Brecht, and uh, in and and in particular, um, a wonderful, wonderful opera play that he wrote with Kurt Weill, which is called Rise and Fall of the City of Mahogany. And just briefly, what happens at the end of it? It's really interesting. Um, the end of the play, the chorus sings, "Können einen Toten Mann nicht helfen?" We can't help. A dead man, and the hero has been electrocuted for stealing a loaf of bread. You know, I mean, that kind of thing. He's he given the electric chair. He's dead, uh, and they bring out his hat and his coat and all of this, and they, they repeat this very intensely. We can't help a dead man. We can do this. We can do that. We can't help a dead man. And the critics of the time uh, tended to take that as well. That's the Weimar Republic. They don't know. They can't do anything. They're all impotent in the Weimar Republic. It's terrible times, maybe. But about five minutes earlier in that play, Brecht has one of his famous plays within a play. And God visits this city of Mahogany, which is the city of capitalism, the city of nets. God comes down to Mahogany. And he sees all these people. He comes to the Mahogany um, whiskey drinks, you know, whiskey poker salon, uh, where we're all carousing, etc. And, and, and he looks at the people and he says, you people, you're terrible. You're absolutely terrible. Look at you. You're all carousing and doing terrible things. And the people of Mahagoni all say, yes. They all say, yes, yes, God, that's true. And then he says, you, you've been, you've been cheating your, uh, your, your neighbor. You've been swindling your friends. You've been going to, a, you know, a prostitute. You've been this, that, and the other thing, etc. And again, the people of Mahagoni say, yes. And then finally, God says, you're all so disgusting. I'd never have you in heaven with me. I'm going to put you all in hell. And for the first time, the people in Mahagoni say, Nine, you can't put us in hell. We're in hell already. Now, go to the wait, end of the... Wait, 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 wait. I, I need to make another point. Okay, okay. Go to the end of the play. Can't help a dead man. Okay? This is what they're singing. Intensely. Intensely throwing it right at the audience. Brecht has just given us the supreme example of authority, God, who's come down, and he's shown people saying no to God. If you can say no to God, can't you say no to a play? 
What he wants you to do is to say, that's baloney. We can help living people. And most of the audience didn't get that. Most of the audience were like the critics who thought it was self-expressive. But I, I but, hear you. But I got it. I guess I'm hearing you and, saying And suddenly I realized, open. my, you know, wait a minute. That's wrong. And, you know, and that's an awakening. And I realized that, that that's exactly what Brecht was doing to me. He was saying the opposite of what he believed in order to wake me up. That's raising your consciousness. John. Well, what woke me up? Yes, what woke... Well, first of all, okay. yeah, what what was your introduction to poetry that, that you embraced it? And then hearing poetry and then waking up to poetry are two different, I imagine, spots to be. Yes, they, okay. they are. Well, you know, the first poetry I wrote, as most kids, is just assignments in, in public school. And uh, when I was in... Um, I went to a, an, an eighth an eight-year, eight, K-8 to school. So when I was leaving school, uh, this teacher who had been a, a literature teacher, been a uh, writing teacher, she came up to me and she said, um, you know, John, you're a poet. Don't, don't give it up. Keep on doing it. So I didn't think a lot about it. But, you know, being growing up in kind of a working-class family, not much money, uh, you don't have a lot of options in life. So, but with, uh, as a poet, all you need is a piece of paper and a pencil, and you don't even need that. You can just do it in your head. So, you know, uh, after that, I thought, well, okay, if nothing else works for me, maybe I can be a poet. And I didn't think about it really too much other than, you know, writing a few things until uh, uh, during the Vietnam War, I, I, um, I wanted to make a contribution and one of, uh, you know, I was getting back to writing, and uh, that was the uh, the burning issue of the day. In, 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 in a lot of ways, it's similar to now, that there, that was a very uh, political time, which uh, we're, we're in or, or coming into a very political time now, where nobody can avoid uh, the, the politics of, uh, of our world because the world is crumbling before our very eyes. So we have to get involved at that time. Uh, everybody my age was being dragged out to Vietnam. So, uh, you know, I was trying to contribute in the ways that I knew how, and one of them was writing. And uh, uh, when I started writing poetry again, it just became political poetry because that I was so started, I was becoming engaged with the world. So, poetry what about you? I'm not a poet. You know. Uh, but you're a writer. I'm a writer. Uh-huh. Are you interested in overthrowing capitalism? <laughs> I am interested in uh, love and intimacy, emotional intimacy. It's the same, and I, that's that's a, the wait, same wait, thing. Wait, 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 <laughs> wait, let me finish that. Go ahead. Because you know you asked yeah. me. Yeah. So I, I believe in emotional intelligence, emotional intimacy, and what that means, I think it's an absence in our consciousness. Mm -hmm. I think once a person signs up to one of, um, to breathe inside of that, that, that overthrows everything because yeah. there's nothing more profound than emotional intimacy. And that overthrows a whole lot of stuff. And so, yes, in that way. Che Guevara said that the revolutionist had to be a lover. Well, you have to be. And absolutely. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
so in, now let's think about poetry out here in the world. Are people interested in poetry? Do they understand poetry? There's that debate about what is poetry, and I know, Jack, I've heard you speak that that At you length. <laughs> <laughs> more Jack. <laughs> I call it Jack talk. Jack talk. <laughs> so that that so now that we're in this space that I hear people defining as this very critical time, and I don't say people define as if it's not true, but just simply putting a fact out there. Do you believe? Do we believe that poetry? will somehow, as it was in the time you were speaking about John during the Vietnam War, as a way to overthrow, undermine, and as Jack, as you're saying, raise the consciousness of, consciousness of people. Well, you, you have to look at what, uh, what overthrowing capitalism means. How do you overthrow capitalism? Um, it's, uh, you know, it's not as simple as storming the Bastille or... Uh, or Storming the Winter Palace. Or the White House these the days. Or, or the White House, you know. Uh, this really is a culture, this is a cultural struggle. The only way to overthrow capitalism is culturally. Uh, you have to build something in its place. When capitalism overthrew feudalism, it wasn't that a bunch of businessmen stormed the castle. Not at all. They grew capitalism in the cracks between feudalism. And by, by growing uh, a revolutionary culture, Wait, uh, slow down, because you're given a part of history that I think it okay. might be that we might need to think about. So, so tell me what it means that they grew capitalism through the cracks of feudalism. Like what would be a snapshot that we can get our, put our minds around? Well, ca- capitalism uh, is based on, uh, on on money. Money has certain properties. It accumulates. You can accumulate. You can accumulate money. It's it's a uh, and the way uh, money accumulates. Uh, it it's uh, it's inseparable from accumulating power. So accumulating power and cu- accumulating property and accumulating money uh, embodies a, a certain power to shape the world. It results in a power to shape the world. And uh, and capitalists, rather than uh, you know kings, the 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 age of uh, the age of kings, all they did was the king just had his 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 or, or her army, and they went out and they. They conquered people and they took their stuff and they rape and pillage. And the capitalists always did it differently. They did it through the financial system. And in the long term, it changed the system. It, it was more powerful than the kings. The kings needed to get loans from the, from the financiers in order to fight their wars. So the, the financiers became the power behind the throne and they, 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 they took over, and they, and of course, with, with industrialization, it became different. Originally, feudalism was based on, a, on an agricultural society where people were, were, were serfs, and that, uh, you know, it's kind of a, form, a certain form of, of, of bondage. And, uh, uh, you know, capitalism had, had its, its own new forms of bondage. And one of the things, one of the influences, I think, that, that did away with feudalism was, interestingly enough, the English translation of the Bible. Suddenly people began to discover ideas that they, they were not subject to. I mean, it was the priest who was telling what the, what, what things right. were. Suddenly people began to discover for themselves and to protest, which is the origin of the word Protestant. That's to right. Protest what's, what, what was happening. And that, that's part of how feudalism fell apart. 
You're People listening. figured out something. You're listening to Javelin's Bistro. My guest you're listening to Jack Foley and also to John Curl. We're talking about the the anthology that both of them are in. And, and John was a co-editor, Overthrowing Capitalism, Volume 3, Reclaiming Community. Let's talk about reclaiming community for a second. And then after that, I'd like you to read, John, your piece. Then maybe Jack will have enough time to do the piece that you have in anthology. What is reclaiming community present time? Well, capitalism uh, uh, does a trade-off. It give it gives you what they call what they call freedom, and the trade-off is you don't have any community. They can just uh, you know you can see it through gentrification. They can just take your city. They can do whatever they want with your city. Pretty much, they own the politicians, so they can uh, you know they can uh, manipulate your community however they want, and through gentrification, move you out and move new, more upscale people in. It's called the money nexus. So See, the not re- the community nexus, but so the money nexus. you don't have nexus. community. There's no such yes. thing as community under capitalism. Uh, uh, it's a revolutionary move, taking back community. You can call it whatever you want, yeah. you know, in, in terms of ism, whatever the society is, whatever the whatever is going to replace capitalism. Maybe, maybe it doesn't even need a name, but um, uh, uh, it comes out of what has always been the socialist movement, which... You know, uh, which basically says that society should be organized around taking care of people's needs and around caring for other people uh, and around sharing rather than competition, rather than hoarding, rather than oppression, rather than, uh, uh, you know, abusing other people. So before you read your piece, uh, could you let our listening audience, uh, first of all, anyone interested in the anthology Overthrowing Capitalism, Volume 3, Reclaim a Community, Revolutionary Poets Brigade, edited by Jack Hirschman and John Curl. And how can we get a copy? Yes. How can um, you can get a copy. Uh, you can go to your local bookstore. It's in, it's in many local bookstores in, uh, in the East Bay and in uh, San Francisco. You can get it over Amazon. And uh, we will be at the Howard's Inn uh, Book Fair in San Francisco on uh, um, Sunday, December 4th, I believe it is. Where is that? Oh, man, you have to just look. Oh, I'm sorry. Go, on, go online. <laughs> online, sorry. Somewhere in San, uh, somewhere in San Francisco. <laughs> but it's a great, you know, large place. The, the, so the, they, if you love books, you should go to the Howard's Inn Book Fair. So when they go, so you don't know when the date of the book fair, but they can No, no, it's Google the 4th. It. Sunday, it's December 4th. 4th. Sunday, December 4th, and we're going to have a book table there, right. and we're also going to be doing a poetry reading. Uh, at a certain time, I don't have the time at this Okay, moment. so the, you can go online, uh, uh, KPF listeners, and tune into that. So, John, let's hear your piece. This is John Curl reading from his poetry from Under- Overthrowing Capitalism, Volume 3. The Hollow. The pathology of the American hollow in the name of freedom, destroy community. The hollow in the eyes of a starving child, blood splatters on the sidewalk. The politician shakes your hand and grins, the moving line between truths and lies, the eviction notice tacked to your door. Nice people move into your home. The pole watcher glances at his stopped watch. All the false promises in the world. The good doctor slices his scalpel into your soul. The rapist chooses an ice cream flavor. 
the rabbit waits to be eaten, the freedom to destroy anywhere provided you've got the money. When I was almost a man, I met my soulmate, or at least I thought she was. She took my breath away. She was so alluring. Or was she just luring me? My head was too light to listen. All her faults meant nothing. What we shared was so honest, so rare. I loved her fierce freedom, poured my heart out to her. Our trust meant all the world. Betrayal was unthinkable. But I was so young then. Many bitter tears would follow. How could I not see? Or did I just pretend to not see? How could I not understand the hollow? The creek, the pine forest, long before, grown-ups drive along the winding road, past the trailhead, but never notice it. Every day we kids dump our bikes out of sight and slip into the pines where the creek bend scoops out a natural swimming hole. It is endless summer. The creek and pine forest have always been here, will always been here. Our world is good, our community. Until the bulldozers push down the trees, the sudden fences everywhere, concrete trucks, the dam, and the artificial lake slowly filling, surrounded by tacky vacation bungalows. The forest, a sad memory. The freedom of the developer. We were devastated, but we were so young then. How could we see? How could we understand the hollow? Then gazing through the crown, on the way there in the ferry prow, standing between my mom and sister, the wind lashes our lips. I must have been six or seven across the choppy waters of the harbor, then up, up the long winding stairs, all the way into her green metal head, gazing in awe at the vast bay and the gleaming faraway city through the windows in Liberty's crown. From this distance, I couldn't see the dirt, the blood, the slums, the shattered lives, the suffering behind locked doors, the prison cells, the landlord's freedom, the cop's freedom. I was right inside Liberty. She surrounded me, all the huge metal bolts and nuts in her emptiness. But I was so young, although the hollow was all around me, right before my eyes, I could not see. But now I see. In my deepest mind, in the vast bay of somewhere, on a small island, stands a majestic woman, draped in green robes, raising a torch above her head and cradling a book. She sighs, sets them down, smiles, and wraps her arms tenderly around her pregnant belly, the statue of community. That teacher was right. <laughs> <laughs> when, what is the hollow? 
I, I, I mean, I'm not trying to be naive, and well, certainly not. In the poem, it's the hollow inside the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty is a hollow. It's a hollow statue. You can go up, and this comes from yeah. a childhood experience of being taken to the Statue of Liberty and going up, you know, inside the Statue of Liberty, and then it's the it's, it really is the hollow, the hollowness of the concept of, li of what we call freedom in this country. Ah, the hollowness of freedom. I have had a poetry lesson today with Jack Foley and John Curl. Again, Overthrowing Capitalism, Volume 3, Reclaiming Community. I want to thank you, and I'll see you next time. I'll see you on the fifth Wednesday. Actually, Nina will be hosting, and I will be her guest. See you then, Javelin's Bistro. Bye-bye. Thank you, Javelin. Thank you. Rights lawyer and activist Nora Erekat is back in the Bay. She'll be speaking on Thursday, November 17th, 7 p.m. at the First Congregational Church of Oakland, 2501 Harrison Street, in this benefit for the Middle East Children's Alliance. When Nora was at UC Berkeley, she helped launch the first university divestment campaign. She recently released the documentary Gaza in Context and produced the video Black Palestine Solidarity. Nora will speak about From Occupation to Warfare, how Israel expanded its use of force and diminished Palestinian resistance. And opening her talk will be Palestinian musician Yara Mubarak. For more info, meccaforpeace.org, 510-548-0542. This event is co-sponsored by KPFA and is wheelchair accessible.